Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Bell. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast. This is James, and tonight we have an episode that I have been sitting on for quite some time. It is my interview with Ellie McNutt. She is a biological anthropologist that is currently teaching anatomy in Southern California. And I, I did this interview a few months ago, and I've been waiting for the perfect moment. And I don't know if we're at that perfect moment, but we are putting it out. It's a really great interview. And I do want to do a little bit of housekeeping at the front because we're getting towards the end of our first season, or at least what I had planned for our first season. So this is an interview podcast. I will have another follow-up episode in a few weeks, and then we will have our final interview uh, sometime in November. So we are slowly running out of things that I have already been recorded. And I have a little bit of a call to action. If you are a scientist and listening to this podcast and you think I do a good job and would like to be part of it, send me an email. There is a link on our website, cyanite.com, and I would love to set something up with you. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Ellie McNutt. Thank you for talking with me tonight, Ellie. It has been far too long than that since we've done this. I'm really excited to do this. Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. So let's get right into it. And I'm sure we're going to go off in a lot of different tangents, as, as tends to happen when we're in a room together. <laughs> uh, but I have, I have a kind of a lead-off question for you. Tell us about your work. So I am a biological anthropologist. Anthropology is a great big field, um, and bio biological anthropology is also a pretty wide subsection of things there. What I do specifically is paleoanthropology, so I am interested in understanding the evolution of us. I want to know how humans came to be the way they are, and in particular, I am really interested in something that makes us unique from pretty much all the other mammals walking around on this planet, which is the way we move. So I study human locomotion, which is called bipedalism, so walking around on two legs makes it pretty strange. The only other animals that really do that, that you think about your sort of day-to-day -day life, birds. Obviously, they mostly have another way of getting around also, so flying is their majority of birds' actual preferred way to move. There are some that are pretty much going to be on the ground all the time. And then the only other animal that kind of comes to mind that walks on two legs all the time is probably kangaroos. So clearly, most of these animals are very different from us. It's kind of a weird way to move. It comes with a lot of problems. You end up with back pain, ankle pain. You know, we all live long enough. We get lucky enough, I guess, to have the problems of our locomotion. So that's what I'm broadly interested in is trying to understand that. Specifically, I do a lot of work looking at fossils of early human ancestors, largely in sub-Saharan Africa. So these are ancestors that lived somewhere between two to four million years ago, primarily is what I'm interested in. Although a lot of my work also focuses on sort of the group of primates or apes that precede 
those ancestors that lived a little bit longer ago. So these are things that are in what we call the Miocene, which is a time period that's about 20 to 5 million years ago. So I'm interested in those primates to help understand how those early humans kind of ended up the way they did. It's really interesting work and it's super tedious and difficult. So why don't you talk about why don't you talk about that aspect of it? You know, it's it's really interesting to think about the puzzle piece nature of it and kind of these higher concepts of of looking for these connections and finessing the evolutionary picture but also making it messier at the same time. But what is the actual work like? It definitely is a, a puzzle, and it's unfortunately, the, the nature of our work is a puzzle that you don't have all the pieces for. And sometimes you find a piece which then makes you realize you were building your puzzle wrong, or that the puzzle looks entirely different than you thought you did. So the sort of beginning work to what I do involves actually finding fossils, which is a pretty complicated process. They're rare in the world, um, and so it means Having been lucky enough that whenever this organism that was walking around passed away, it did so in a place where it could turn into a fossil. And then that's now been a couple million years. And being in a place where somebody like me or other researchers are wandering around and actually able to find it and that it hasn't been destroyed by all the processes happening and, you know, things get warped and crushed and, you know, they come to the surface and they get weathered by, you know, sun and wind and all these things and so they may not be there anymore so step one that's really hard is actually finding these pieces and then for me i look obviously i'm really interested in the lower limbs and sort of how we move so being lucky enough to find a piece of lower limb because a jaw is awesome but it doesn't help me much so being able to find those pieces that tell the story that you're interested in figuring out who they belong to because all right, I found a femur, the big big bone in your leg. Okay, great. Does that belong to this particular species or this one? So you have to know a little bit about who is actually involved or it doesn't help you actually put anything together. You know, I just have a, a piece of bone somewhere. Um, and that's complicated and that is much bigger than any one person because you have to be able to kind of connect the dots. This shoulder belongs to this head, belongs to this knee, and so that is a big part of the collaborative effort of my field. And then a lot of what I do is sort of once it's out of the ground is trying to understand what the anatomy tells you. So we have all these bumps and depressions and round things on all of our bones. So these shapes are meaningful. They actually tell us something about what you do. And so in order to understand that, you have to kind of know how to read that roadmap. So a lot of the work I do also looks at living animals, living primates, other animals that move in similar ways that are interesting. So I work a lot with things like bears, something that's big and climbs a lot, makes a nice kind of analogy to bounce off similar kinds of locomotion with things like primates. Um, so I have to understand the connection in a living animal between what your bones look like and what you do in order to have pieces of an animal that's been dead a million years and actually understand anything about what they were doing. So a lot of that is understanding sort of comparative anatomy, living animals and their bodies, and then using that to sort of interpret what we see in the fossil record. And that changes a lot, you know, we didn't have this particular bone in the foot and now we find one for the first time. And that may change the story because, you know, we didn't see how they clicked together before and now we see it's a little bit different than we thought. Or, or it is like we thought and that 
generates new ideas about you know where they lived in terms of like in the trees or on the ground and things like that so those change a lot of our interpretations about the whole animal as we get little more little sections of information from new places you know and it may take you know it's oh i found a cave and it's got a thousand things and we got it in you know a week and it's changed everything or it may take 20 years to find the next piece of that particular puzzle so it can be um it's an exciting and wonderful, but also kind of a patience-requiring job. <laughs> so let's let's talk about a, a little bit about the the times when you have this beautiful hypothesis. Like, it is one of the greatest hypotheses that has ever been put onto paper. Um, and then you get the evidence. And like most hypotheses, it is immediately disproven. And whether or not that has actually happened to you um, is kind of irrelevant, but it happens It happens a lot in science, especially in this where the, the fossil record is kind of so um, staccato. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is that feeling like? Can, can you describe the, the feeling of, like, everything I know is wrong? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely happened a lot. It's happened a lot in my field. Um, I've been sort of lucky... A lot of what we knew about the foot has changed over, you know, the history of the of the human foot. It's pretty, I, I won't say stable, but it hadn't gotten too crazy for maybe the last 30 years. And sort of in the last 10, we found a bunch of new things that have shown us that the picture is so much more complicated than we thought it was. And it's like a little bit like you said earlier, you kind of, you find it. You know, I have one species and another one and another one, and they're separate in time, and I have a nice linear line. This one, A, turns to B, turns to C, easy. And suddenly, I find E, F, and G, who are complicated and weird, and it's suddenly not a nice bounce, bounce, bounce understanding of how one turns the next. It's sort of, oh, this one has some things in common with that one, but not others. And trying to understand those more complicated relationships gets harder and more accurate the more information you have. So it's lovely. It's always good. I'd always rather have more fossils. They always tell us more about the world, but it does make it a a more complicated process. And it's frustrating when you're like, oh, yes, I have a really good idea. Oh, no, my really good idea is wrong. (laughs) A good example, one of the very first things I ever did when I went to my first time in a museum, I looked at this bone that's been well studied for, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, somewhere in there. Um, And I looked at it and I realized a part of it had been broken and reattached a little bit incorrectly. And I was a young grad student. It's my first time in a museum. And I went to my advisor and I was like, this is wrong, isn't it? And he kind of told me after the fact that he'd sort of humored me and been like, oh, yes, let me look at it and I'll show you why you're wrong. And he went, shoot, that is that is wrong. And sort of a, just a new set of eyes saw the, the, the problem in front of you a little bit differently. Um, and that happens a lot. Um, and it will happen to me at some point in the future. And I will go, shoot, I had that wrong. Yeah. And so it, it's frustrating, but it's also good. It's the way the science is supposed to work. It, science, when done correctly, is self-correcting. So you do the best you can, the information that you have, and then you adjust as you get new evidence. So I, I live for the bit of the frustration because it means you're finding new stuff and figuring out new things. I don't know. I like it, but maybe that's why I'm, science isn't for everyone. <laughs> you know, and I, I've often, I've often thought that, um, when something doesn't turn out the way you're expecting, it's almost a little bit more exciting because you know that 
there the answer is still out there like it's it's findable um the the beauty of science is that the answers are there it's just the search is going to be a little bit more difficult and it may not actually be concluded in your lifetime which which happens more often than not but it's almost a little bit more depressing when you are like a hundred percent right and i have reached the end of the road on this project it's like oh Okay. I, you know, I would always be a little cautious, this is uh, the scientist in me, if you're 100% right all the time. Either you're asking simple questions, or maybe you're you're not giving the complexity of nature its full <laughs> full showing. Because, you know, I think we're, we're really good at recognizing patterns and things, but we're certainly not perfect. And you learn a lot from the, oh no, it's not that, and, and why of that. Um, is almost as informative, as you say, as, haha, I was right. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard said, and I've repeated it, like I, I've come up with it myself, but my favorite words in science, and I think some of the most important words in science are, I don't know, because that is the thing that leads you to the search. Absolutely. Um, if we're not asking something that we don't know the answer to, then it's it's a history lesson at that point. Yeah, very true. So it, it seems like the work you do takes a fair amount of dedication and um, a lot of effort to kind of keep going in this search towards an answer. Um, so what kind of led you down this road? What got you interested in maybe science generally, but even specifically in your part of biological anthropology? Yeah. I have kind of a a funny path to how I ended up here. I was broadly interested in in sort of science and math as a a young kid. My mom has her PhD in microbiology. I kind of grew up being exposed to that. I, you know, when I was quite little, I thought everyone's mom had a lab. So I sort of had this weird perspective to start. But I I knew I was interested in those kinds of things. But um, I have an older brother who went into engineering and that kind of Okay, well, that's where I'm going to end up. So I started grads, excuse me, I started undergrad in engineering, and I wanted to be a materials engineer. And a materials engineer is a little bit different. They're not so much how do you build a bridge, they're what do you build a bridge out of. And I was really interested in that field because there was a professor working there that I, what I wanted to do was sort of explore you shatter your ankle, and right now people put titanium plates and screws in to help hold that all together, but now you've got bone and metal sitting next to each other. They never go together. You've always got sort of a risk of fracture around those. And this professor was interested in changing that and using a ceramic. So something that would trick your body into thinking it's bone. So eventually the repair would become part of you. So how do you do that? And that's kind of what I started off. I was like, I want to do this kind of work and kind of understand bone and how that works. That's sort of, you'll see the, the hints of where this is going. And then in my sophomore year, I decided that I was kind of interested in, okay, maybe there's some medical applications of this. And I wanted to work in a research lab that was doing squishier science. Love engineering, but it's a pretty hard science. And so I started working in a lab that studied muscular dystrophy. So I was looking a lot at how muscles work um, and trying to understand that. And I kind of had this epiphany that I like that side of things. And so I went, all right, this is... This is awesome, and I like the squishy, so I'm going to switch my major just before my junior year of college, and I am going to do the closest thing, Iowa State, where I went had to physiology, which is biochemistry, so I'm sort of doing physiology work in biochemistry. But I, for fun, 
took every anthropology class that Iowa State had <laughs> because it was cool and I liked it and I liked bones and so I started taking these biological anthropology classes and my senior year my professor showed this BBC documentary and it was about Australopithecus which is the species um, excuse me is the genus of sort of early human ancestors that I was talking about earlier, these things that are running around two to four million years ago. So this is about a whole bunch of these different species and this cool video, and this guy walks on to the video. And he has a tibia, which is the bone that's in your shin, all right? And the very bottom of your tibia in a modern human is pretty square. We put our forces pretty even, we walk upright, everything's kind of moving in all the directions through it. And he had a chimp. And a chimpanzee has a bottom of their tibia, which is a trapezoid. So it's wider at the front and smaller at the back. And the reason for that is because they climb all the time. So they're putting all this force through the front of the bone. It changes it. The bone gets bigger to help manage that. And then he pulled up this three million year old fossil. Her name is Lucy. You might be familiar with her. She's quite famous. She's this early Australopithecus afarensis. And if you look at Lucy's tibia, she looks like us. So you can tell what she was doing three million years ago. She's moving like us from her bones. And this blew my mind. I was like, oh my god, this is muscles and a little bit of biology and squishy side of science that I really enjoyed, mixed with a lot of the engineering that I really liked. You have to understand biomechanics, which is essentially the engineering of motion to help put these things together. And I went, who is that and how do I do that? <laughs> That's what I want to do with my life. And I ended up applying then to go to grad school to work with who turned out to be my advisor, Dr. Jeremy De Silva at BU. And so that sort of started me down that path of like, that is an amazing stuff that I want to spend my life doing. And it worked out really well that the random stops along the way, these sort of engineering and uh, those have helped me be better at what I do now even though they aren't sort of the classic way to get to this. Um, so take classes for fun in college because it's awesome and it leads to your future. <laughs> that is a huge takeaway. Anyone that is listening, you should never take a class only because it fits your requirement. I mean, sometimes you got to check those boxes off if you're close to graduation. I get it. But if you can find a class that fits that, distribu that distributive requirement, that also seems interesting to you, you are going to find something from that course and it's going to help you in ways you never expected. So that is, that is great advice. If that is the best advice that you give out in this entire episode, it will be a science night chestnut that we will roll out during pledge drives from here until the end of this endeavor. Delightful. And, um, the, the person that you mentioned, Dr. Jeremy DeSilva, uh, was a presenter in our very first Science Night, our live event, Science Night Origins, and I have probably seen the tibia that he was carrying around. He is often carrying a fossil or 3D print about his person. So We're big fans of props. Props. <laughs> yeah, he, he often calls himself the carrot top of biological anthropology, and it's not that untrue. Um, I think we've talked enough about Dr. Jeremy DeSilva for one episode. Um... I think what I'm kind of finding as I talk to more and more scientists is that there is not necessarily an A to B from where they started in their interest in science and where they are at with a terminal degree 
and kind of working towards um, different parts of academia. And I think that the takeaway is that you should never kind of write off a path. You should always be open to things. I mean, that's kind of the the scientific thought, right? The, the thought process that makes you a good scientist also kind of makes you flexible in life. I've known maybe three people who, young age, knew what they wanted and went there and are super happy and that's where they were meant to be. But that is definitely the minority. I think most people use their path and their life experiences to kind of end up where they where they should be but it, it's I think that straight shot is is rare and don't feel bad if you don't know where you want to be right at the end you're in a a field that is typically male dominated um, can you talk a little bit to the difficulties um, or at least the perceived difficulties and you don't have to get into specifics we're not looking to name names or anything like that but have have you found have you found that getting into those rooms has been a little difficult a little bit more difficult for you than if you had a male counterpart trying to do the same thing yeah i mean definitely and it's one of those things that it's better in my generation of scientists than it was 20 years ago certainly than it was 50 years ago it's one of those things that's oddly sort of changing from the bottom so if you look at the folks in college, in grad school, there's many more women involved there um, than are represented perhaps in sort of the higher ends of academia, so full professors and things like that. Um, I'm hopeful that's that's changing. But yeah, it is sometimes a, a, a difficult process. I think it's, it's difficult um, for any minorities, and it would be more so if I had other minorities to compound that. But it's, it's one of those things that you, the ways that I have found to combat that are to help support other women in a similar position to me. So I do a lot of work collaborating with other early career grad students as well as early faculty um, and other women in similar positions um, and trying to choose mentors, both male and female, who recognize that that can be a bit of a, a challenge. So trying to find people at both sort of a departmental and institutional level um, and certainly field-wise level that recognize and help people move forward and try to not, my field has sort of a name for sort of silverbacks, I'm kind of hearkening back to our, our primate um, studies, folks that have kind of dominated the conversation for a long time. And so I think a lot of that is changing, perhaps not as quickly as it might, <laughs> but it, it does seem to be getting better. And I think that a lot of that is changing with the attitudes around how science is done. Sort of who does, a, you know, for my stuff, who does a fossil belong to? And trying to make things, generally speaking, more open, more available for people to study, giving opportunities for, for students as well as early faculty in their careers to actually look at and kind of interact with with these kinds of materials is is the biggest thing you can do because putting out more science getting more fresh eyes on it is a good way to sort of let people shine who have really good ideas who've maybe been ignored a little bit and i i do see that happening and i see that happening more than i than less so you know i'm hopeful for the field in general but i think you're right i think mentioning and kind of 
realizing that there is an issue. Um, I, I like to think of it as a problem, but we can at least be light and say that there is an issue uh, with representation at the higher end of, of this. But if you look at anthropology as a field, it is becoming, um, I would say it's, it's past the 50% mark as far as like a male, female split. Um, if you take the four, like the four disciplines within anthropology as, as a whole. Um, but at the terminus of that, it still is a very male dominated voice as far as what's coming out of the field. But if you look at like graduate students, undergraduate students, um, I see a lot more women getting interested into that. So it does kind of point towards a brighter future. Yes. The, the, the biggest challenge, I think, this is true across science, but is just sort of keeping those voices in the field, in any particular science field that's like this, um, where you, you lose folks because of barriers, both institutional and personal and broadly academic, um, that make it hard to stick around. And so making sure that you have those kinds of opportunities for folks in minorities to actually get onto the sort of tenure track and, and stay, th stay through that, stay up until they are full professors and sort of chairs and running departments um, is, is the big goal is, you know, stop our leaky pipeline as it's been called. Um, and kind of prevent some of the things that force people out early. You talked about things like full professorship and tenure track and, and those sort of things. And do you think you could take maybe a minute or two to talk about the hierarchy of academia as far as like, what is the end goal? Is the end goal tenure or is the end goal the job that you love um, and how to navigate that way, that thing? Um, it very much depends on where you are in terms of the, the institution you're at. very much depends on, um, on, on you yourself as an as a academic and researcher. How much research do you want to do? How much teaching do you want to do? Where do you want to be in the country? And are you lucky enough to then find a job at that kind of institution, that kind of place? Where is your your partner or spouse end up and, and kind of making all of that work together? I think that's a very personal set of questions you have to ask yourself. They have advantages and disadvantages. So the sort of tenure track, classic research sort of oriented job involves a great deal of work up front. You spend a lot of time trying to get through lots of research to kind of put yourself where you need to be in order to pass those tenure benchmarks. Um, having tenure at the end of that is, is very nice. It's got lots of job security, but it does sort of force you down a very specific path. It can be very difficult to manage your teaching loads and manage other life-related things while focusing that hard on that kind of that goal. And not everybody, for a number of reasons, can do what we've sort of demanded of folks in order to make tenure work. That is not the only way to be an academic. That's certainly not the only model for institutions. There's a whole gambit, which I would not do well trying to, to show the whole thing, but <laughs> sure. there are other positions that are going to be much more teaching focused, maybe not so much research, not necessarily going to have tenure 
as as the end goal, um, and that's perfectly fine as well. And it very much that is something that that you kind of have to have sort of a, a heart to heart with yourself about if you're looking at the ten year track. And definitely talk. You know, I can't give you suggestions about which is the right way, but what you sure. want to do is you know talk to people at that institution, get feedback from people at similar places. What's it like? What is you know what did it take for you to get there? Are you happy? Does it let you do X, Y, Z thing, which are important to you and sort of then pick that path that best suits where you want to be. But I don't think, I don't think there's any one right way or one perfect goal for where you need to be at the end of it. I think that's another great takeaway that we like to think of just like the general public likes to think of evolution as a straight line towards a goal. Uh, We like to think of academics as a straight line towards a goal, and the truth is a lot messier, uh, but a lot more accurate, just like we talked about earlier. And it seems like the most important thing is, is having that conversation either internally or... Uh, within the family, within your uh, extended family, even even within your institution, mm-hmm. um, so that you don't get to that end goal and kind of are like, okay, well, I, I don't want this to be the end goal. Constantly, sort of, for me, throughout my academic career, I think this is a good piece of advice, sort of, in any kind of career, where are you now, where do you want to be? And in a couple years, where are you now, are you where you wanted to be? And how do you get there? And sort of just and finding people who who give you good advice. Find people who are modeling what you want to do, and and finding good mentors is and you know not being afraid to seek out more than one. Thinking you only have to have one voice. Sure. I think finding finding the people who help you and support you to get where you need to be is is a very important step um, towards kind of any career goal, but. Any life goal, really? Yeah, just a life goal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we're we're turning into a self help <laughs> podcast within <laughs> this framework. Um, Science we're is self help. It's fine. So, just to kind of switch tracks a little bit, because we'll talk about things that maybe we can shed a little bit more light on, mm-hmm. um, at least within this conversation. When I talk to people about evolution, just generally evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of hinted at it a couple minutes ago. It seems to be that people think that it is a straight line towards a goal. And I talked about this on um, on a live stream, and I kind of was like, okay, that is something, and it's like Lamarckian evolution, and it's and it's mm-hmm. not anything that we really put credit in. And the truth is a lot messier, <laughs> uh, and. <laughs> I think a lot more interesting. So we've moved away from that standard Pokemon evolution um, to something that's a lot more nebulous. Um, Have you found ways to talk to people and I don't want to say like we're talking down and making them explain, uh, Mm -hmm. making them understand this concept that's so easy that that we have such a great grasp on, but... What are some ways that you can talk to just like the average citizen about um, evolution that they might have a misunderstanding on to kind of get them towards that right track or that more accurate track, I should say? More accurate. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I like to do first is sort of sometimes poke at the little bit of absurdity, sort of the very classic image people have in their heads, I believe is a life magazine sort of, there's a chimpanzee and it kind of turns slowly into this standing, very white, very Chuck Norris looking kind of guy. And that's 
evolution has happened and it's sort of like okay you already know that life is more complicated and chimpanzees are still alive right so pointing out sometimes that that image at first is a little silly and and very reductive is a good starting point of being like okay well clearly life is more complicated than that and then trying to use analogies that are a little easier for people to grasp so I try and make it more complicated, like let's talk about, you know, family trees so you understand how you and a sibling or you and your parents are related to each other and then, okay, well if you have aunts and uncles and their kids, how does that work and that there's sort of time involved in that relationship as well and that you are not your cousin but that you share ancestry that you can trace back through your life. And so I find that is easier than to sort of, okay, well, humans and chimpanzees are cousins who then share this sort of ancestral parent who isn't here anymore. It's not an animal that's alive and running around, but you can kind of make that easier to grasp. And I think just trying to make the, the scaffolding we sort of build these ideas on something that's a little more tangible and a lot more accurate is, is sort of where I start for that. Um, and then also just kind of pointing out when people are confused about how do, well, how do you know this happens is to sort of talk about the multiple ways that, you know, certainly beyond my own field that people come at these questions. And so fossils are definitely a giant way to do this, but we you can do stuff with embryology and sort of how does life develop in the sort of shared patterns between things there. We can look at sort of biology and there are small scale ways you can make evolution happen kind of in in certainly within our lifetime sometimes in you know fruit flies and things like in hours <laughs> so trying to show multiple ways to get at the same um kind of concepts and sure. different kinds of science that let you get there I, is, I think a big thing is just helping people understand the effect of time mm -hmm. um is also hard because it's it's not a ladder leading from one thing to the other. As you say, it's this more complicated, we always like to call it kind of a tree, but part of what makes that tree is time. And sort of you have branches that, you know, didn't work out, they ended up dying off. And sort of what you see alive today are the branches of the tree of life that made it sure. to today. And sort of tracing their way back towards some root of life is kind of the, the field of biology broadly sort of interested uh -huh. in that. So it seems like... Uh, modern humans are really quick to kind of pull themselves out of that natural selection process. We hear a lot about, we know we've developed technology, so we're developing outwards and we're no longer kind of within that evolution by natural selection framework, but we can look at species that have a lineage that is far, far older than we have and they didn't quite make it to the finish line. Um, so, so how do you kind of talk about that? And, and it's not necessarily, I guess it's probably not the biggest problem that we have in science right now, but it is kind of a way to think about the world in a less anthropocentric, uh, uh, manner and kind of realize that this is still happening. We are not above nature. Uh, we are within nature. So do you have any, have any tips to kind of bring us back to reality in that aspect? <laughs> Well, and yeah, it's something that, you know, you generally, certainly in humans, don't notice this happening around. So I, it's an understandable thing that this doesn't seem like it affects all of us anymore. 
I like to bring up that there are things which are really new. So I happen to have blue eyes. Blue eyes are something that's only about 10,000 years old. So just, you know, recent changes. Um, lots of people will have had the experience or have friends or family members have the experience of getting their wisdom teeth removed. So they're a third molar. And one of the things people ask me like, oh, is evolution still happening? Well, turns out fewer people are being born with third molars. So these wisdom teeth are sort of disappearing. They no longer fit in our mouths. And that's why we have problems is our, as our mouths get a little bit smaller, they end up coming in wrong and giving us all kinds of issues. And that's why we have to go thank the modern dentistry for helping us not end up getting infections and, and unpleasantness from that. So <laughs> as that changes, you know, it's, it's pretty small, but you know, those, those little, you know, frequency, if suddenly in, I don't know, this is a made up time scale, 500 years, no one had that third molar, that would be evolution. And it doesn't happen super random, you know, not necessarily that fast, but just to kind of give you kind of an idea that there are things still changing in us right now, even if they aren't as dramatic as, you know, I've been asked by people like, will we one day have a tail and things like that again. And those kinds of things are really <laughs> unlikely. Evolution is a, is a great tinkerer. It acts on what's here. So you can take things away and maybe you can add things back, but it, it doesn't usually just like spontaneously create something. So it's, it is generally a slower process and it's, people just have to remember that technology is magical. We certainly have changed the circumstances acting on us, but we are not above that. It's, we're still being shaped by these things. And I think it is important to note that technology could act on the evolutionary process. I've heard it theorized that um, our eyes may be changing um, to kind of cope with uh, screen strain. Hmm. And if we don't have some kind of way to eliminate blue light that we could change over a long, long period of time. Again, depth of time is something that we will definitely uh, uh, focus on um, <laughs> going forward. But that is one thing that could change. You know, the fact that we are taking in all this light that is damaging to us could lead to people who have uh, a mutation that doesn't have that effect, you know, that could become a little bit more widespread, but we're talking on timescales that are generations and generations and generations, and none of us will be around when any of that happens. That's super cool. I haven't actually heard of that. <laughs> yeah, I actually just heard about it today. It was really cool how, how the, uh, <laughs> how the, the, um, the matrix that filters out blue light is becoming denser, um, across, across cool. the species. Yeah. Hmm. But who knows? That could just be that could just be noise. <laughs> I want to kind of bring this towards towards a landing here. So we've talked about how you have a demanding job, and there is a kind of proud history of people getting to that level where they have the PhD, and now they're on a different track where they thought that getting through grad school was going to be the most difficult thing you do. And then you get onto your postdoctoral um, service and, and this is the most difficult thing I've done. And then just like that trudge towards tenure track, if you're getting onto a tenure track job or if you're in, in um, instruction, it's just like the getting those courses under my belt type of thing. And burnout can happen pretty regularly within, within academia, kind of in all fields, not just science, but, but, 
it's it's pretty prevalent just because of of the demand and the hours you put into it. So what are some ways that you've found to kind of prepare you and cope with that? Well, uh, for one, I try not to think of it as a trench. <laughs> just <laughs> give myself a little bit more positive outlook. Um, so for me, a, a lot of the things that I do, the, the first and probably most useful for me is I'm a teacher. And I love teaching. And so the act of sort of sharing knowledge with with students or when I go to a museum and talk to folks or anything like that, watching people get interested and excited and sort of no way about something makes me excited. It keeps me interested in what I'm doing um, because I love, and I love that moment when you're explaining something and sort of the light bulb turns on for a person and Passing that knowledge along makes me happy to do my job. And I like, you know, I like knowing new things to sort of blow other people's minds with. And so that's, that's part of it is just luckily I have picked a field for myself that sort of reinforces my field and makes me happy to do it. But obviously beyond that, I like chatting with people who are colleagues of mine and trying to challenge myself to sort of push the edges of what I know. And it may not be something I'm going to do research on, but it sort of tells me something about the broader interests of our field and kind of, oh, that's really cool. I'm, you know, I'm curious about this. And it just keeps me intellectually engaged with sort of understanding us. I like it too, because that's also how you talk to people with different opinions, different insights and stuff. And that, that, bouncing back and forth of information helps. Oh, wait, what if you tried blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it gives me feedback in that way. And then I also do, you know, silly things. I like to, I love to read and I read, you know, science fiction or fantasy or anything that like kind of bounces my imagination around. And so, and, you know, reading or watching or, any, you know, any of those things um, that kind of keep you curious and keep you thinking this is a really cool story and trying to where's the story going and I, I'm constantly one of those people trying to guess the plot of you know where the book or the video <laughs> game or whatever I'm, I'm watching and so that kind of exercise not that I ever think about it that way helps keep me engaged and, and I take breaks <laughs> this is a yeah. huge you know particularly in stressful situations so the world at this moment dealing with COVID-19 has been rough and hard on my productivity for, for the science that I love to do. And I can't even imagine people who are in a more tense and stressful situation. You know, there's got to be a little bit of giving yourself permission to, to take a break, to take a step back and to think about something completely different, whether that's something like an emergency I have to handle or whether that's just letting yourself do something else. You know, I like to do mm -hmm. refurnished furniture and things like that. Some random other thing that is not <laughs> related to what I do and kind of giving your brain a rest and a chance to reset to come back to it. So I think that's one of the biggest things that causes people to burn out is this sort of gung-ho, I'm going to do X thing over and over and over and over again forever. Um, and then it can be really hard to keep doing that thing well. And so being kind enough to yourself, giving yourself permission to do something else for a bit usually makes it easier and better when you come back to the thing. And so... I, I was kind of give myself breaks so that I keep loving what I do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, 
It's uh, and and I have a hard time calling myself a scientist. I tend to call myself a science communicator or kind of hedge my bets more that way, so that I can talk to the public and that academia doesn't get too mad at me either. Um, but I love looking through kind of that hashtag science Twitter. Um, man, the most interesting things pop up. I've seen things ranging from very accurate. Um, felt versions of a human spinal column um, to one of my one of my favorite things that I've discovered in the past couple of years, which is March Mammal Madness. Yes, and, it's fantastic. Uh, it is a wonderful thing. Um, so, if you're listening and it is near March, just check out that hashtag March Mammal, Mammal Madness, and you will be delighted. The other thing I find I, I would say this too is I like nature. The world around me is cool and weird and it's weird keeps me interested so sort of apropos to relatively recent news things here in the u.s uh people keep talking about murder hornets with the just these big <laughs> japanese hornets right well the japanese honeybee that, that has evolved next to them deals with those who come into their hives and they they decapitate all these honeybees by surrounding them mobbing them and vibrating and they can live at a degree higher than the hornets so they microwave them to death and that is amazing. Nature is super weird, and I love it. And so that kind of, like, the weirdness of the world and yeah. space and everything, you know, keeps me... I like learning about it because I like finding the weird and being like, I can't believe that's true, but it totally is. I think that's a big part of it. And I think every every scientist I've talked to, but most people in academia or education, and I think most people, whether they're realizing it or not, um, kind of have a propensity towards lifelong learning. Um, you get to the realization that I will never know everything. So I am just going to keep learning until the end point. There are lots of efforts in the world to kind of keep kids interested in learning once they get out of high school out of college or in those summer gap months and i think that's a huge part of the picture whether you ever use the scientific theory to create a research problem you can use science in your everyday life just as a critical thinker and i think that's something that the average person needs to maybe give themselves a little bit more credit for absolutely you know, i I found this problem and I looked at a bunch of different steps to fix that problem and I found the one that worked and it works for now and it might not work in a couple more years so maybe we're going to have to fix that leaky pipe again or something like that but that is the the uh, journey of science right that is <laughs> so not all science happens so, in a white coat in a, in a lab somewhere you know walking outside and looking at the world and trying to figure it out for yourself when you're on a little walk that's science yeah. too. You know, I'm. I don't like to tell a lot of personal stories because I don't want people to think that I know these people super well, and I'm only talking to my friends. But in this case, I am talking to one of my friends, and I went to Ellie's dissertation defense, and I didn't see any white coat uh, science happening on those slides. I saw a jeep that was very stuck in mud. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> I saw so many animals climbing about you and <laughs> and chewing really... through equipment and yeah. Good times. <laughs> but it really it made the science seem fun. Not just approachable, 
Um, Because, you know, we've all gotten our Jeep stuck up to the fender in mud in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, (laughs) But it... It made everything that you were doing seem fun. Like, there was obviously the tedious moment that came right after that picture was snapped. Um, but the look on all of your faces was like, well, this happened. This uh, happened. It's a good time. <laughs> you know, you get the Jeep out and you keep going. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure there are people that we'll talk to on this show that have more of a traditional scientific, I'm going to be in my lab with my white coat, but it's it's all what you make of it. You know, if if you if you put yourself up on this pedestal, the rest of the world is going to think you're up on this pedestal too. And then all of a sudden, that that's when it kind of seems a little more arrogant, a little more pompous. But if you're willing to show the Jeep in the mud, everyone has that kind of story. And I think I think your your sort of lab coat white science has the the white lab coat science has its Jeep in the muds. They're just. Mm-hmm. Ah, I just dropped all of my things, and now my, you know, my gel is on the floor or whatever. There's mm-hmm. moments of, oh no, and then you keep yeah. going. You know, so I, I think they're all, all the different kinds of science are important. They tell you different pieces of a large interconnected exactly. whole that that is the world. But yes, some of them are a little muddier than others. <laughs> yeah. So that brought up one last thing that I, I, I wasn't thinking about, but I do kind of want to talk about it before we go. Um, you talked about all of the different sciences having their place. And if you look at science, at least in America, 50 years ago, it wouldn't necessarily seem that way. It would seem like the chemists do their chemistry and the geologists do their geology and the anthropologists spend a lot of time in leatherback chairs uh, with pipes. Uh, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the effort to kind of remove those silos and a little bit more about interdisciplinary um, uh, efforts, maybe within anthropology general uh, uh, specifically, but also kind of in science broadly? Because I think a lot of the more interesting finds in the past 10 years have been these interdisciplinary teams looking at um, a problem. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that people have recognized over over time is sort of in a, in a sort of very broad sense, I mean, a lot of these different, you know, disparate, quotes, fields of science are not so disparate, you know, at various levels of biology, really what you're talking about is chemistry at various levels of chemistry, what you're talking about is physics, or what you're talking about is math, you know, so they they have a huge number of overlap, and you have to understand sort of at least parts of, of both of them in order to actually get kind of at a whole. Um, so in that way, science is, is broadly so interconnected with itself, and, and people are just getting better about recognizing those points of interconnection. Um, certainly, anthropology one of the things I think has changed is remembering that there are multiple voices involved in how, you know, how you collect data, what data is important, what do we focus on, how do we do that, who do you do that with? And that's one of those moments where I think things are, have, have adjusted, you know, sort of our historical perspective is sort of men in armchairs who sent out people to go do stuff for them if they did that. And now when you go someplace, you know, I work in in sub-Saharan Africa, you, you were working at a place where people live and that it is, you, you can't just, 
very colonial kind of like, let me come and take these things and, and run away. And, you know, it's, they're, they are part of our human history and, and that trying to make the place you go better and not take from it in that endeavor, I think is a, is a big change in our field, which can always be, be done better. But I think that's one of those sort of moments where, if you will, sort of cultural anthropology is met biological anthropology. The big question that you always hear about within anthropology generally, um, but specifically like archaeology and cultural anthropology is who owns the past. And that's a big question that is getting a lot more headlines. Um, and it seems like that discipline is starting to actually acknowledge that this is an issue. We, by we, I mean Americans or people of European descent or Europeans, uh, do not own world history. Um, and I think, you know, in the past 30, 40 years, the discipline has actually started to kind of acknowledge that that is the case rather than before it's, well, let's bring everything back to the academy and we will have it here and we will put it in boxes until it looks like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I definitely think there's still a lot of grappling with that to be done, but those conversations are finally starting there out in open and I, it's certainly beyond me to, to, to know one way or the other or how everything should go, but I, I, I definitely appreciate that the discussion is more complicated and happening now about how things should be talked about, interpreted, because when you tell history, it's important to remember that you're bringing some of your own perspective to that telling, and I think certainly historically, there have been a limit on the perspectives that were acceptable there. Um, and that is definitely getting more complicated and we're better for it. So I hope that continues. Ellie, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. And thank you all for listening. If you want to follow Ellie on Twitter, she is at bones on the go with underscores between all of the words because that's how Twitter is. Thank you so much for listening. Like I said, we are getting close to the end of our first season. To everyone who stuck in there with us, I cannot thank you enough. This has been a lot of fun. If you are a scientist and want to be part of this show, go to our website, scinite.com, and send me a message. I would love to talk to you. And if you're not a scientist and you want show notes and some links to articles and cool videos, again, SciNight.com is your one-stop shop for all things Science Night related. I will be back in a few weeks with a follow-up episode, and until then, have a great night. Okay, so <laughs> that was just a we can, we don't have to get it. We can keep it rolling, and I can edit things. But, oh there. man, she started screaming, didn't she? <laughs> oh yeah, that one I heard. <laughs> the joys of kids at home. Yeah, uh, the whole new world. <laughs>